0: so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome back to our uh Romans study in which we will be dissecting chapter two hopefully the entirety of it today in this one podcast Um, if not it'll be broken up into two parts but if you have not listened to Romans chapter one I would highly encourage you to go back and listen to that especially part two because that kind of transitions into what we're going to be talking about today so welcome we get right into John or into, into John. i looking at some of my notes. Romans chapter two, verse one. Now, if you look at previous, the thought process he's going, Paul is kind of, he's kind of bringing in this concept in which it's all about this exterior group outside of the church. And here's what I mean by that. In in uh, chapter one, seven through twelve, here's what he says. Here's who Paul's writing to. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then everything he talks about after that is kind of this concept of he's um, establishing you in what he says. So he's, he's, when he says you, that's when he's referencing directly to the church that is in Rome who are called to be saints together with God through Jesus Christ. When he says they and there, he's referencing outside of that. Okay, so let me just give you an example. And back in 21 of chapter 1, he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolishness. It's this external group of people that he's referencing. And we talked about that briefly in, in the chapter 1, in which what that group of people is, and how not only is it immediate in the context of it, but it also extend, extends even unto the church today. But the immediate context is people who are outside the covenant of Jesus Christ. Now look at what he says in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. He's now establishing something. that he's He established something in chapter 1. Now he's bringing that which he established into chapter 2 to try to teach the church. And here's what he's trying to teach them. In John 7, 24, he says we mustn't judge uh, but we must judge with right judgment. So there is a, a a capacity within the church to judge. But it must be with the right judgment. It must be with the spiritual lens outside of any notion of the flesh in accordance with the truth of God's word. That is how we judge rightly. But he's trying to show here, the church, you're not doing that. You guys are, are making Judgments within with uh, with partiality between Jews and Gentiles, and that'll make sense when we get to twelve through twenty nine. But let me just keep reading. He says, "For in passing judgment on one another." I'm sorry, on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. He says you're trying to judge one another while you've got stuff going on in your own life that is just completely against the Lord and you're doing it on purpose, intentionally. It's not an unintentional stumbling and struggling and you're genuinely going to another believer and you're trying to keep them accountable. He says you are judging one another and you have ill will in your own hearts and you've got sin that is unrepent of in your own life. And now you're trying to judge other people harshly. Your own brothers. He says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves that you will escape the judgment of God? Notice again, he is referencing the believers. And he's basically stating it like this. i just summarized like this. People who are making judgments in the flesh. And I believe that's part of the reason why he says, oh man, because I believe he's showing them you are judging from the wrong throne. You're judging with the wrong eyes and you're judging with the wrong heart. It's the fleshly tablet of your heart. It's your own fleshly mind and it's the flesh that's sitting on the throne. And that is what is making the judgments, not the spirit of God in you. As 1 Corinthians, what is it, chapter 3 that says that the spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one. When we are walking in the spirit and the spirit has control of our mind and our heart, we are to judge. But not when the flesh has control. And I believe that's what's happening here. And he goes on, he says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Now, here's the fascinating thing on that. Oftentimes, in Second Peter chapter 3, people use this to diagnose um, unbelievers. And I'm going to read this for you in just a second, because I don't believe that it is referencing unbelievers. I believe it's referencing the church. Listen to what he says, starting in verse 8 of 2 Peter chapter 3. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. Beloved is a term diagnosed or specifically designed to be used for the brethren, the church of Jesus Christ. Those who are saved, Christians. He says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, meaning towards you. He has this promise of eternal life towards you. He has promised it, but you have a responsibility within that promise. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise that some count slowest, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish But that all should reach repentance. Who is Peter writing to? It's the beloved. Who is it that has the promise of God? It's the beloved. Who is it that God is patient towards within that promise? It's us. And what is his desire? That we would not perish, but that we would reach repentance. And right after that, Peter gives a rebuke to them saying, So you better watch out. He says, that day will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will burn up. Um and be dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed since all these things are thus to be dissolved what sort of people are you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will burn as they will melt as they burn but according to his promise we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells therefore beloved since you are waiting for these be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish that means that he is saying I don't want you to perish I want you to repent and be found without spot or blemish and that means that if you don't repent you will be found with spot and blemish. This whole aspect that he's diagnosing from 8 until 14 is one to the church saying he is going to come back and he is patient towards you and he doesn't want any of you to perish but he wants you all to reach repentance but that choice is yours. And because he's going to come back, that should scare the mess out of us. Which is why it says, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 7, chapter 1. Or it's chapter 7, verse 1. Even going in Philippians 2, I believe it's 13 through 14, when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Notice not just fear of reverence, but fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God Almighty that is in you, so you better make sure that you're living a life of holiness without spot or blemish. So when he goes back into Romans and he says, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, he is referencing the body of Jesus Christ. That's why he says, you, not they. Not knowing that that God's kindness is meant to lead them to repentance. Unbelievers, no, that's not who Paul is talking to, he's talking to the church. And God's kindness and patience towards you should lead you to repent from those spots and blemishes that you have on your soul. He says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And a lot of people would probably say, well, that's not terminology that's used towards Christians. I mean, God wouldn't say that we have hard and impenitent hearts, meaning that they are not penitent. They are not bowing in submission to his word. Let me just tell you, I know of many Christians who don't bow the knee to God's word. And you would say, well, then they're not a Christian. Well, I'm sorry, that's not exactly what the scriptures say because 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3 says that you can be an infant in Christ, but of the flesh. Listen to what the, the terminology is that he uses in Hebrews 3, 12 through 13, in talking to the beloved. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And notice we goes on to chapter five and verse eleven. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. These are passages written to the church. Hard hearts who are not bowing in submission in that heart to the total word of God. And that's why it says, but because of your heart and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That means you and I, even as believers, will give an account. What that looks like, I can't tell you. What I do know is that if you choose to have a hard and impenitent heart against the will of God or the word of God. Then you are storing up for yourself wrath. Unless you confess your sin. For he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First John 1 John 1.9 A famous passage written 60 years after John's conversion, which he includes himself, which means that John understood that in order to be forgiven of that sin, it was not at the moment of my salvation at the cross that gave me the access to be forgiven of my present and future sins, wiping away my past sins. As Romans 3, I believe 25 says, he became the propitiation for the sins committed previously. The past sins were washed and wiped away. But once I move forward, enlightened to the truth, I now have accountability to my present and future sins. And if I do not repent of those, then I will give a judgment for those. It does not negate my salvation, but there will be a consequence for them. However, if I choose to plead the blood of Jesus and I confess that sin, God is faithful to uphold his end of the bargain and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. That means that I could have an unrighteous mark against me. You see, all these things are not things that I was told growing up. These are things that I learned from the Spirit as I got into the Word and I began to see that there was contradictions in the belief system in which I was brought up in. Here's the reality. Hebrews ten twenty six through 30 says it like this. For if we, the author includes himself, go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, he doesn't say we were never really saved. What he says is this. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses died without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment will you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Not hasn't yet to be, but was sanctified and outraged the spirit of grace. For it is written, the Lord will judge his people. Who are his people under the new covenant now? That would be the church. Who are the ones who have been sanctified under the new covenant? That would be the church. Who is the author of this, including himself, in saying if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins? That would be part of the church. This means... That even as part of the church, if you choose to walk in deliberate sin because of a hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on that last day because there will be no sacrifice for sin for an intentional sin. Unless, in my belief, you confess that sin. You repent of that sin. And God is faithful and just to forgive you of that sin. Now, I might have unpacked a can of worms that I don't have time to go into, um, but at least I'm giving you some breadcrumbs, because I want you to understand that there are a lot of heresies out there by well-meaning people. There are a lot of heresies out there, and a heresy is is not meaning that somebody is condemned to be um, banished to hell, and that a heresy is simply just a... Teaching that is not in line with the word of God or with what is considered orthodox of the age. And at least in my geographical location, teaching that people are not forgiven of past, present, and future sins at the moment of their salvation would be considered heretical. But I would flip the script because I believe that the word teaches that that belief is heretical. Again, well-meaning people that I believe love the Lord teach it but I believe that they need to have a revelation of the fullness of truth and just as God is patient with us we need to be patient with one another as we figure this out the main thing is is that we are lovers of truth and we're willing to engage about it and so he goes on he says he will render to each one according to his works now, There's another one, and as I told you, I will will, um, dig into those things that oftentimes it seems like people don't want to talk about. I'll kind of press into those more than most. But he says, he will render to each one according to his works, not according to his status of faith, but according to his works. Now, isn't that a fascinating concept? Because we are so seemingly scared of something called work-based salvation. And I believe we need to have a better understanding, and we'll get that towards the end of Romans chapter 3 of what that's referencing, going into Galatians chapter 3. But I believe that works are a very crucial part of our salvation. They will not bring us into salvation. No one will be justified by works of the law. I could try to imitate Christ all I want to, but if I do not have a genuine faith in him as the Lord of my life, then I will not get in. I don't care how good my works are. There is none who are good. No, not one. No one truly seeks after God. So the, the point in which is being referenced here is that the works that he's doing and referencing here, I believe, is post-salvation. And I don't believe that works are simply just relegated to, well, if you work, then that means you are really saved. He says, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Now, the only person that has the promise of eternal life is the one who is in Christ. And here he says, so you need to work out that salvation with fear and trembling. You need to do what you're supposed to do and allow those works to strengthen that faith which brought you into this salvation because we are saved not by our works of the law of Moses, but by faith. But you need to make sure that you are working out that salvation, which is fascinating too because the Greek word for work out is karagazamei. It's one of my favorite Greek words to say because it makes me sound smart. Katerragazime means to achieve or to accomplish or bring to fruition or completion. So it's not just an exercise term like, like a, uh, was it gymnasia, I think in First Timothy chapter four and it says bodily training is of some value. This is a word that is not along those lines. This is a word that means to bring to completion and he says it is your and I job. To bring our salvation to completion in the fear of God. And what's fascinating is that's the exact same thing that he says in 2 Corinthians 7 1, same author. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us. Um, Now let me, usually if I get the very first part of it, I can finish the rest of it. But let me turn to it. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Exact same thing. Well, why would we need to fear God? Because if we don't bring holiness to completion... There's a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. I really hope that you're you're catching this. I really hope you're smelling what I'm stepping in. I really hope that you guys are are being given by the Spirit a mind to see. Because this is exactly what the Spirit says to every one of the churches in Revelation. Of those seven churches, it says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. If you don't have an ear to hear or if, if you don't have a heart to want to receive God's truth because you're so complacent in the truth that you think is true, then there's a good chance you might have already turned me off. But if you're willing to listen to what scripture says and the spirit has given you a mind to understand because your heart is not hard and impenitent, then I really hope he's giving you revelation right now to the fullness of truth. You look at Hebrews chapter 6, 11 through 12, and I'm bring this one into the equation because I believe that every truth must be established on two or three witnesses. And so you need to have at least two or three scriptures that validate that same truth. Here's what he says in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12. I'll start in 11. And we desire each one of you, meaning to the beloved, to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish. But imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Notice it was not just faith, it was faith plus endurance. Now, endurance would be a work. So, if we're going to say that it's not work based, we need to make sure that we're actually understanding what that means. I do not come into this faith by works. I come into this salvation, I should say, not faith. I come into this salvation by faith. However, I have the obligation to supplement works to that faith to keep my faith strong and thriving and growing. And if I am not doing that, my faith can die. So therefore, works are an integral part. But what works are we talking about? Works of the law of Moses? No. Works under the law of Christ. This is why I think a lot of people get James chapter 2 mixed up, is because they say, well, this isn't really referencing that we're justified by works, because then that would be work-based. I believe it's exactly stating that. In James 2, he says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That word for justified simply means approved. And we just saw in Romans chapter 2 that for those who by patience and well doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. You will stand approved. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Your faith gets you into it, your works preserve that which got you into it unto the end. So it's not a work-based salvation is both accurate and inaccurate depending on how you're perceiving it. I cannot do any amount of good works to get in. This is what the rich young ruler had the problem of believing. What must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. He goes, I've done all those since I was a youth. He goes, okay, I know you have because I know your heart. Go and sell everything that you have relinquish your life to me as the lord of your life give me ownership over everything and you can be saved and the guy was like not willing to do that and walks away unsaved there's no amount of works that i can do it is simply believing that he is the christ the son of the living god and confessing that with my mouth and believing it in my heart that he is the lord of my life i will be saved But the works that I supplement don't necessarily only prove my salvation, though I think there's a case to be made for that. But they preserve my salvation because they strengthen my faith or they weaken my faith, depending on what works I supplement to it. And he says it, he will render each one according to his works. He says, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, But obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Now this goes into Galatians chapter six, seven through ten, where he says this that do not be deceived, God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. If you sow to the spirit, you'll reap eternal life. Notice that you have to sow to the spirit to ultimately reap the eternal life. That's not just you have to have faith, it means you have to walk by the Spirit to not gratify the desires of the flesh. He says, But the one who sows to the flesh will reap corruption. And then check out what he says right after that, in which Paul, inclusive of himself, it is so important to pay attention to the pronouns that are used. Paul includes himself, he says this, And let us not grow weary in doing good, supplementing good works to our faith, sowing to the Spirit, if you will, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Paul says, what am I going to reap? What did he already say? Eternal life. Man, I really hope you're getting this because Paul is including himself so we cannot just look at it and say, "Oh, he's just saying that's the proof of their salvation that they were really saved. No, it's not. Paul is including himself. And Paul is saying that if I continue to sow to the Spirit good works, I will reap that eternal life. But if I choose to be self-seeking... How did Romans put it? If I choose to instead be self-seeking and I don't obey the truth, but obey in righteousness, there's going to come wrath and fury. There'll be corruption, if you will. Moral decay. And I will reap that eternal life if I do not give up. You know what another word for that is? Hupomone. It means Patience and endurance. And isn't it fascinating that both in Hebrews and in Romans chapter 2, verse 6, he says he will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience, endurance, and well-doing. Those who endure to the end. And notice in Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, he says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. It is not the one who endures to the end was saved as if his endurance was the proof of, of his salvation it's the one who endures to the end will be in the end saved just as in Romans chapter 8 and I think this is one of the most crucial verses that we could ever bring into the equation In Romans chapter 8, Paul says this about himself in verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Notice the we. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul is bringing it into a future tense of that, of saying I have a job to do in this life. I must endure in this life. And if I choose to not endure, then I might not reach him in the end. And I believe that's also what he says in First Corinthians 9, 24-27. When he says that I would be disqualified from running this race if I don't keep my body in submission. If I choose to not work out my salvation with fear and trembling and I just sit on my laurels and I take that talent that God has given to me and I just bury it in the ground and I say, you're a hard man. God's going to come and he's going to throw me into that place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. We cannot get this wrong today from our pulpits of just reassuring people because one day when they were 8 years old, they said that they gave their life to Jesus as Savior. And we think that they're once saved, always saved. And they have this idea when they're 50 years old on their deathbed that when I was 8, I made a proclamation of faith to Jesus Christ, but my life never looked like I ever gave it to Him as Lord. Somewhere along the line, some pastor reassured them that once you were saved and you wrote that down in your Bible, the date that you were saved, that you became saved and always saved and nothing that you ever do or don't do can take that away. That is heresy. Verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. He says, for all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now it doesn't take much to go a few chapters later in Romans chapter 6, 14 through 15. He talks about, he says that we are not under the law. So obviously what he's referencing now is doing another shift away from instructing the church to now instructing essentially all of mankind. Because seemingly, as I talked about previously, starting in verse 12 through 29, there's some sort of disgruntlement or dissension that's happening between the Jews and the Greeks. The Jews and the Gentiles within the body. Something's taking place in which there's partiality being shown. And Paul is trying to make a case here of saying, look, God shows no partiality, whether it's in Christ or whether it's outside of Christ, there's no partiality between sin. It will affect all of us. Every one of us will give an account. Whether you're in Christ or outside of Christ, the difference is, is that my sin in Christ does not lead to my perishing. It leads still unto a salvation with a consequence. Those who sin outside of Christ, their sin will lead to eternal damnation. And Paul's making this case. Of saying everyone who has sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. He says you're not going to get around it. The law is not that which has the bearing or the, the the barometer, if you will, of what is going to save and not save, meaning the law of Moses. The law of Moses will not bring about salvation in any way, shape, or form, pre Christ or post Christ. It does not have a bearing on whether or not you will be saved in the end. Now you can go into Ephesians chapter 2 and you can look at what he says there about the law of what happens when a person comes into Christ. You can go look in Second Corinthians 3 where it talks about the Ten Commandments even and the law, the covenant that was there. And what is said that that which had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. You could go into Galatians chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 and see that Paul is making another case there of saying that we are no longer under the law, that righteousness cannot come through the law of Moses. It is not something that has any bearing or weight upon the believer. You can go into James chapter 1 and 2 where he talks about this law of liberty which is obviously not the law of Torah because he says right after, so speak and so act as those who would be judged under the law of liberty. Let me just tell you, you don't want to be judged under the law of Moses, but you do want to find any kind of judgment that is done to you in the person of Jesus Christ under the law of liberty, which is a freedom or a liberation from that which held us captive. And that is the schoolmaster Galatians 3 talks on and the law that was given at Sinai. I encourage you to go to read Galatians chapter 4. So he's making a case here that doesn't matter if you're under the law, outside the law, it doesn't matter even if you're in Christ, everybody will be judged according to their works. It's just the difference of the end result is whether you're in Christ or not in Christ. And even here on this life, those who are in Christ have a blood that they can plead to find the forgiveness of that sin, to be cleansed from all unrighteousness. He says, for it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Meaning that if you go back and analyze under the old covenant, that those who did the law were the ones who were approved before God. It wasn't just those who heard it. It was those who did it. And the same principle now applies for those who are in Christ. It's just the law has changed. It's no longer the works of the law of Moses that we are under but there is a law of works that we supplement to our faith and that we uphold and that'll make sense when we get to the end of Romans chapter 3 he says this for when Gentiles who do not have the law, meaning the law of Moses, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Notice that there will be a judgment. And Jesus Christ is the one on the throne. And that's why in Second Corinthians five ten, Paul says this. That we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, each of us to give an account for what what we have done in the body, whether good or evil. You will give an account. So let me again just ask you, if you are forgiven of all past, present, future sins, and they were forgotten at the cross when you came into salvation, how are you going to give an account for anything before God, whether good or evil? You see, these things don't make sense. They're doctrines of men that we have been, um, as Galatians put it, bewitched charmed into believing even when the word of god contradicts it he goes on he says but if you call yourself a jew and rely on the law and boast in god and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind a light to those who are in darkness an instructor of the foolish a teacher of the children having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth you then who teach others do you not teach yourself You're holding the law of Moses up on this pedestal and you're saying this law of Moses is everything. This law of Moses is good. This law of Moses is what I need to be going after. And he says, are you not teaching yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written... The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So here's these Jewish Christians who are upholding this law of the law of Moses. And they're saying, hey, this is what we need to live by. This is the standard. This is what we need to go by. He says, are you not even teaching yourself? You don't get it. You obviously haven't read my letter to the churches in Galatia. You haven't even read chapter 2 of James in which he says... If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, yes, you should love your neighbors yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law's transgressors. Forever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Says, Don't you realize this? You fail in one point of the law, if you're trying to keep this as your righteous standard, if you fail in one point of this law of Moses, you're accountable for the whole thing. That's what the old covenant was all about. You're caught in the act of adultery. You're going to be stoned to death. You're accountable to the law as an entirety. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law, meaning the law of Moses. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Not the law of Moses. Not Torah. He's distinguishing between the two laws in James chapter 2. To say that Torah is the law of liberty is to be fool. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Back in Romans chapter 2, he finishes up by saying this. You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemy among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision by break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Understanding that this whole concept is, is that if you want to try to uphold the law of Moses, if you fail in one part of it, you're accountable for all of it. And this law is creating the sense of hostility between the Jews and the, and the Gentiles, even within the church. And Paul is right in here saying these things ought not to be so because there's no partiality between Jew and Gentile in Christ. And part of what he has done for us, he has eliminated the law of commandments expressed through ordinances. Let me read this in Ephesians chapter 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you, meaning the Gentiles, were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, meaning Jew and Gentile, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed through ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. The law brought hostility between Jews and Gentiles because the Jews were seemingly clean and the Gentiles were unclean. Now this word for abolishing is the word and It means rendered idle of no effect, useless to be ceased, to be done away with and made void. And the law of commandments expressed through ordinances is the word dogma. Ceremonial and civil rules and requirements of the law of Moses of severity and threatened judgment. Now, some of you might go into Matthew chapter 5 and say, Well, it says very clearly Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. You're absolutely right, he didn't. He came to fulfill it, and in its fulfillment, when we come into Christ, we find it abolished. But Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, it's still in full force. But when you come into Christ, you are no longer under the law of Moses. It is no longer your schoolmaster or your guardian. And this is why Romans 7 says, you have died to the law so that you might belong to another. If you have not died to the law of Moses, let me just tell you, you cannot belong to Christ. I'm not saying that. Romans 7 is saying that. Galatians 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 is saying that. It's not about the law any longer. The law brought hostility between the Jew and the Gentile. Christ brings unity. So I believe that what he's trying to state here in chapter 2, as he's kind of seemingly interjecting a message to his church, to that church in Rome in those few passages, is that God's not going to be partial against sin. Sin is still going to be judged, whether you're in Christ or not. The end result will be different. But the judgment, he is still going to judge because all sin has a consequence to it. And while we who are in Christ have a blood that we can plead to find forgiveness, as opposed to those who are not in Christ, do not. Sin is going to be dealt with. And you have an obligation to supplement works to that faith in order to keep that faith strong, just like a muscle. If you don't work it, you're going to lose it. And the whole arching theme of all of this, of chapter 2, I believe, is that one, don't walk in the flesh. You don't need to walk in the flesh. Unbelievers are going to walk in the flesh because that's all they got. They don't have the spirit. They don't have a choice. They don't have the, the ability to choose anything other. They will be of the flesh. And we must not be. We must choose to walk by the Spirit. And if we choose to walk by the Spirit, then we don't have to worry about gratifying the desires of the flesh, nor do we have to worry about the consequences if we were to gratify the desires of the flesh. But part of the understanding that he's bringing is there's some hostility that's going on within the congregation, seemingly between Jews and Gentiles. And he says, these things must not be so because you are living under the flesh and that's what's causing the dissensions and the hostility, even as 1 Corinthians 3, 1-3 talks on, even 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and one of the things that he states there. And understanding that the person who is under the law or the person outside of the law, they have n- neither one has an advantage over the other. As he's going to make clear in chapter 3, when he says, do the Jews have an advantage? Yes. But then he goes on in verse 9, what then, are, the, are we Jews any better off? No, <laughs> not at all. You had the advantage because you had the promises of the commonwealth. You had the the benefit of knowing God under the old covenant. You had a starting place that was more advantageous. But in Christ, it's not going to make you any better off. Or, I'm sorry, outside of Christ, it's not going to make you any better off. And we'll get to that a little bit later on. But the point and the premise of chapter 2 is, don't live by the flesh. Whether you're in Christ or not, the flesh, you will be held accountable for it. Never make judgments according to the flesh. And one of those things that is according to the flesh is making judgments according to the law of Moses. And that's something that we are no longer under. And so, hopefully this was encouraging to you. Hopefully it was challenging to you, convicting for you, but a blessing to you. you all be blessed.